the subject for this evening's talk is problem or no problem. Sometimes when we not only look around us but also and equally inside of ourselves, we sometimes experience and interpret the world that we live in as an extremely problematic place to have to live in. And all the, the data which pours in through our eyes and our ears and our senses and our very <coughs> tissues itself seems to indicate to us that there are huge, large, insurmountable problems and human beings have an immense undertaking to try to deal with slowly, or gradually, quickly some of these huge problems. But we also look at ourselves and as features of the environment, as co-participants in the nature of things. We see also the very problems too which perplex us, which hammer it seems into our or are hammered into our life and it's like we're kind of living our life in which we're going it seems from the presentation of one problem that gives us a, a brief passes away rather briefly a short welcome break only for very quickly another problem to arise on the horizon of course, it doesn't really arise on the horizon, but well, maybe it does. And, and so it seems our life, in a, in a kind of general description of our life, it's problem, and a couple of breaths, and then a new one, and a couple of breaths. And we move through the circumstances and situations of life like this. And in that movement from one thing to another. We sometimes have the tendency, of course, to put blame for the problems of life. And we sometimes forget that the very blame is as much the problem as the problem itself. And we somehow we want to derive, we want to uh, adopt some kind of comfort in the casting of blame and it seems to be often in two major directions, outward and inward. We blame others, past and present, for how we feel, how we experience, what the state of our life is. And we derive some perverse comfort in having the opportunity to dump our negativities uh, elsewhere. Sometimes we don't wish to uh, dump them uh, elsewhere. We choose another uh, feature of the environment which we call myself. And then there is a reactivity again and it's the same kind of uh, dumping which takes place. And in that, in some way or other, we tend to acknowledge and believe this way of relating passing through life, having a problem, having 
difficulty in dealing with the problem, finding a way to blame, and generating that blame outwardly or inwardly, having some temporary relief from our situation, and moving on some alleviation through pleasure, some alleviation through some peacefulness and contentment that may come, and it seems only for a fresh problem slightly different from the old one to arise. And we ask ourselves, I hope we ask ourselves, surely life isn't just that, dealing with problems and relief from them and dealing with a new one and moving through an endless cycle of all of this. What is something different from all of this and so different from it is not uh, even worth speaking in the old way? Some, I think I've got a problem with a mosquito bite here. <laughs> some, some of you who have uh, travelled to be here have come to, come to India. And one of the favourite uh, one-liners of people who come to India and arrive here, and you hear it on the railway stations and on the buses and in the chai shops and whatever, from uh, people who spend their lives here, and they ask you, you know, what is the purpose of your visit? And this, 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 this one has been um, asked, probably, it was probably being asked when Alexander came here four or five thousand years ago. <laughs> and he didn't have an answer, and neither do we. And then sometimes one is also asked, and in uh, its question too about the, the purpose of one's visit and the next question which comes you know um, you have come to India you are seeking peace <laughs> you know it's hard to imagine why anybody would want to come to India to seek peace <laughs> <laughs> but this is a common uh, question and sometimes when one is traveling in India too then people will, will ask you are you one person or two? And this is... <laughs> Sometimes the question before a retreat and after a retreat gets a different reply, I should warn you. <laughs> so one comes and hears these uh, various questions which come to, to us and we trot out our various uh, replies and our answers to these. But sometimes in the most an ordinary question which comes to us in, in life. Sometimes it's worth just saying, well, is it just the superficiality of the moment, or is it the possibility that perhaps I should ask myself this question, what is the purpose of my visit? Am I seeking peace? Am I one person or two? And in these questions which come and are generated from outside and uh, inside of us, sometimes the everyday question, of course, which is asked in the, in the West is, how are you? And we usually come up with a, whatever it might be, okay, not so bad, going along, you know, so-so, etc., etc. And one friend of mine said that he decided that when anybody asked him this question, how are you, he would actually give them as clear a description <laughs> of his particular experience and problem at that time. And it was remarkably effective in ending and putting a cessation to the question. 
So again, in the questions which arise to us from life from out, outside, we of course rather nonchalantly just respond in our often rather glib and sometimes glum way. And perhaps we ought to be asking ourselves if we're interested in looking deeper into life about these questions of life and the ordinary ones which you and I ask of others and ask of ourselves day in and day out. Sometimes, too, in coming into situations of the quest for peace, one of the deep spiritual quests of, of life, the, the, the peace which is beyond mind's comprehension, even beyond heart's belief, that sometimes you and other friends wonder how on earth did one find oneself in this particular place, that is, in this country? What were the circumstances which brought each and every one of us here? And sometimes we look and we can think of countless numbers of causes and reasons and conditions and for some even into the circumstances of Budgaya it, itself the very uh, heartbeat, the pulse of uh, Buddhist pilgrimage how is it one found oneself even in this situation and there's been an influence here in your life and an influence in my life and an influence in other life and somehow in the whole mutual support and dependency of things we find ourselves here in this situation and we could put a thousand, a million, one reasons that make an event happen. Just recently I was uh, giving some teachings in the forest in northern New South Wales. The person who was teaching with me, Sabana, who was telling um, in a story in one of her talks during uh, that time that 19 years ago, when she was 19, she <coughs> arrived in India alone. She got on the train in Calcutta to take the train to Delhi. And, no, to Varanasi, uh, sorry, before Delhi. And while making uh, on this train journey, she decided that she would get off at the next railway station and simply ask for a Buddhist temple. She knew nothing about India, she knew nothing about Hindu, Buddhist tradition or whatever. She just said to herself, thought on the train, I'm going to get off the next station and just ask to go to a Buddhist temple. The train station that uh, she got off was Gaia Station. <laughs> and then she went, she told me, she walked out of the railway station and she saw a rickshaw waller outside the railway station and she said to him, please take me to a Buddhist temple. <laughs> and he began peddling <laughs> and peddled and peddled and she thought, where on earth is he taking me? You never heard of Budgaya or whatever. Some people have come here, I've never heard of it, and peddled and peddled, it seems, she said it seemed to go on and on and on, and then eventually he arrived with her outside the main uh, gate of the temple, 19 years old, travelling alone, and she said she just got off the bicycle, got paid uh, for the ride, walked through the main gate of the stupa, just walked round, got to the tree, and she said she just burst into tears couldn't explain any of it, 
couldn't explain the whole trip, the impulse that came, had no idea where that came from, no idea how she got off at Gaia. The rickshaw waller took her to the main stupa, to the tree over there, walked in, sat down and cried. So I say of this world that we, that we live in, and even of the problems of this world, let, let alone the uh, extraordinary events which I'm sure a number of you can uh, relate to in your own life, how things work and conspire together and make something which happens and that happening affects and touches one in some particular way. Sometimes when we look at the world of the world of the, the, the problem, what is called in the uh, tradition the influence of karma. Karma being defined as here and as it has done uh, class classically is the unsatisfactory of influence of the past in, upon our lives. This is karma. The unsatisfactory influence upon our lives of the past. This unsatisfactory influence of karma on our lives sometimes bears its fruit in the present. There have been influences going far, far back and please let's not set a limitation on how far back that goes and just say, well, from the moment of uh, my birth or the moment of conception, it is too short-term a view on the expanse of life. And in that influence which takes, takes place, sometimes, of course, in the world of meditation, in the world of retreats themselves, there, of course, problems appear. There's the presentation of problems. One of the things which is sometimes noticeable for people on uh, retreats and in this kind of environment, that there seems to be, as it were, a kind of settling in to a situation which occurs. We not only are, remember, we're never just settling into being with ourselves. That's not adequate for a settling in. It, it's not only a settling into the situation which is around us that the presentation of the here and now. It runs deeper than our senses, deeper than the feeling inside. It's in fact a settling into the very nature of existence. A whole being to settle in to the nature of existence. And isn't it so often in our life that such the problematic experience of human beings is because we haven't understood the wisdom of the settling into the nature of existence and we constantly fight it and struggle with it and try to control it and manipulate it and fashion it to our will. And this endeavor to fashion life to our will generates problems at the expense of wisdom. So sometimes we are in the process of settling in whether you have been in this room for the past 11 days or whether you have been in this room for one day. And in that very process of settling in, the settling in does seem to expose. And that's the very purpose and function of awareness. Its purpose is to reveal. It's extremely choiceless in that feature. It's extremely... Uh, 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 comparable, we might say, to shedding light on what is happening. 
It doesn't necessarily, as some meditators have got the idea, that just by being aware, just by being mindful, just by um, being uh, conscious of the moment, just by observing that this is going to be the cure-all for all problems. It's a naive person who thinks this way. Just watching, just witnessing, just observing, just meditating is not the solution to the problems of life. It's a useful tool, it's, an, it's a valuable aid, but it is not the solution. The solution is in the ultimate truth of things, in the fullness of wisdom. So sometimes they say problems are arising. Problems, emotional problems, intellectual problems, existential problems, life issue problems, problems directly related to the past, to the future, whatever. So sometimes there is this settling in, and in this settling in, some problems appear, some difficulties appear. The very indicator of a problem is that one doesn't want it. It is a problem. One doesn't want it. And it's not easy to convince oneself that one does. <laughs> Some people on retreats have tried. They have said they've, come, they've been sitting and walking and a problem has come up through the day. The person has said, ah, oh, here's a problem, wonderful. It's my guest, it's my friend, it's been sent by God, it's a gift from my parents, it's whatever. All sorts of thoughts can run through the mind to try to stop a problem being a problem. But the pressure of the problem, the component of it, the impactfulness of it, all of that inside oneself says, I wish it would go more than anything else. I wish I didn't have this problem. And sometimes a person says to themselves and says in small group meetings, you know, if I didn't have this problem, I'd probably be enlightened by, by, by now. And, and then there would have to be two or three trees in Budgaya, one for me and one for those who help me. <laughs> so, again, with the problem of the mind, then just, try, just trying to wish it away with nice thoughts is not much use. Mind doesn't take notice of this wishing away. And then we have an extraordinary thing that goes on. It's a very un extraordinary thing. It's so extraordinary that it's kind of almost, not quite universal, but it's extremely widespread. And it's the widespread in the way that we perceive problems in all sorts of traditions. And the person then says, you know, I was settling in. And then I found that Soon after the settling in, or within a day or so, something started coming up. Something was coming up. And when it started coming up, it really started affecting me. Or something was going on deep inside of me, and I wasn't sure whether it would really come really right up, or whether it would stay where it was, or whether it would move up just a li little, little bit. And sometimes the thought arises, I wish it would really come up and you know, come out. Or I wish, I wish it would just stay steady, or I wish it would just do something in some way or other. Come up to where? 
And this view can be so strong, it, there's a kind of assumption in the view. And the assumption in the view is that I am, whoever that I am, I am up here, up in the top of my head, hanging out in the top of the head chakra. <laughs> and let, the problem is down there. And it's going to come up and get me, I know it. <laughs> and so the kind of implication in this view is that I am up here. If I'm up here, I can't be down there where my toes are because I'm up here. And it's coming up. And it's overwhelming me. It's really taken a hold of me because it's just come up and it's just swamped me. But that's from the view of I am up here. But that means that one isn't down there. And if one isn't down there where the, where the toes are, the logic would ask, where do I stop being and where do I... The non-stop, non-I stop begin. Understand? If I'm up here, then I can't be down there. And if one says, oh, I'm actually, I'm right down there, I'm right down at the base... Then one would think, my God, I've got another problem because that problem is going away from me. It should be coming towards me because I'm down in my feet or I'm down, in, down deep in my, what the, the Japanese, my hara. And it's moving away from my hara, so I've got another problem. <laughs> so th we have these views, things coming up. Who decided this? Who made this agreement to think in this way? And therefore one begs the question for every meditator, for everyone interested in the therapy of life, for everyone interested in looking at the conditioned views of things, it begs the, the question, did anything ever come up? Only comes up for one who thinks their eye is up above somewhere. Who is going to be so bold as to make such a claim? Sometimes we look at our life, we look at the outer part of our life. Life, heart, mind, speech and body. This is our human life. And we look at our life as an uh, active sense of doing, a kind of participation in this world. And in this doing in this world, we sometimes say to ourselves, God, my life, it's so gross the way that I live, the patterns, the habits, what I'm doing in this world. I'm living in a, in a gross, egotistical way. The, I, the only thing I can ever think about is what I want. That's all the thoughts that I ever know. And all of that, sometimes it... There's a kind of unpleasant feeling in, in all of that. Something narrow and restricted and unfulfilled and, and, as I say, a distinct feeling of how unsatisfactory such a way of life is. And then we say, it must be something more than this way of living. And then we, we take a step. And we take a step. And that step is that we want to see, well... Who am I in all of this field I call existence, this life? And it's as though, in just sitting down for a moment or two, 
and we'd certainly be sitting down for one hell of a lot more than a moment or two. But in sitting down for a moment or two, and in touch with the breathing experience, one single breath, what we have actually have stated to ourselves is all the grossness of doing and acquiring and accumulating and achieving and obsessing. That in the moment that we just take an in-breath and an out-breath, a certain refinement has taken place. One single conscious breath, when we sit carefully and mindfully, in that moment has, in that moment I emphasize, has dissolved in that moment all the problems involved with gross ways of living in that moment. Not to say that cures it, of course not. And in that moment of being with the breathing experience and just breathing life, it feels refined. It there feels to be an authentic subtlety compared with the grossness of doing and competitiveness and striving. And there's a sense of some cooperation with life, some reminder to us in life of something a little bit more harmonious. And we're not doing that just to promote method and technique. I'm not interested in any kind of promotion in the spiritual life. But that relationship to that tells us of something a little bit more subtle. Would we be, be, be prepared to look more subtly into things? To leave behind some of the grossness which comes to us? Some time ago, some time ago, it was a couple of decades ago, I was uh, a monk in uh, Thailand, and I had been away from the, the Western paradise for about uh, five lovely years. And my uh, good mother um, wrote to me in the monastery in Thailand and asked if she could come and uh, pay me a visit. And after uh, about two years of deliberation, I... Uh, no, no, that's, no, that's not fair. <laughs> so I... <laughs> so I um, said uh, yes, and uh, to please come. And for those of you who are engaged in um, these kind of practices here, sometimes it's tens. For those of you who come from a rather strict Orthodox uh, Christian Judeo-Judeo uh, uh, tradition, or any, or any other, sometimes coming into these situations does send shockwaves. And when, uh, personal here, when my mother found out that I had um, uh, uh, shaved my head and, as my father said, put on some brown curtains, that my mother immediately, um, immediately being from a Catholic uh, upbringing with a, unfortunately a large C rather than the small one, um, immediately telephoned a family friend in the Vatican who was the uh, head of the seminary there and she only had one question. She said, is, she said uh, Christopher's become a Buddhist monk. Does that mean he's automatically excom excommunicated from the church? and all the hell and damnation that can accompany that. And fortunately, and fortunately the, uh, the priest, Monsignor Curtin, uh, 
I never thought of that before. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Good. Well, I often say sometimes it takes more than 20 years to realize things. <laughs> um, reassured her that since I was leading spiritual life um, with some whatever, love and awareness, and I was okay in God's eyes. It was a kind of reassurance. Anyway, she came to Bangkok, and I went to meet her in Bangkok, and she said, and some of you may have had the same thoughts who are today entering into your first uh, day ever of uh, meditation retreat and of course we hope it won't be your last day and we were sitting in the hotel foyer in the very uh, in one of these rather expensive uh, hotels in in Bangkok and uh, the tourists were buzzing in and out of the, of the hotel and while sitting there she said why, why are you leading this kind of life she said, surely you can do something with the church, and why do you, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, why are you doing it? I said, because I love meditation. She said, what is this meditation? What's, it, what's meditation is all about? <laughs> so I said, look, you can't talk about it. It's useless. It's a waste of time. The only way you can understand what meditation is is by meditating. That's the only way you can possibly understand. She said, all right, well, teach me how to meditate. So the tourists are pouring in and pouring out. Yeah, so we're sitting there in these you know, huge armchairs in the middle of the foyer there. And I said, well, you know, like I said, straighten your back, you know, and just uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I sat there, this you know, shaven-headed guy, shaven guy with the robes on. And the tourists were stopping, and they formed a kind of circle. <laughs> You know, not very often you can go to a circus in the middle of a, a, a hotel. And so she's sitting there like you're doing today, and those of you who are first time on the retreat, sitting, she's sitting there. And I said, well, just sit, just five minutes, enough, just for five minutes. Sitting there. So after a, a minute or so, I opened my eyes, and my mum's going, like, <laughs> <laughs> eyes squinched up, looking, looking. And the tourists are standing there in the circle and watching this, this going on, like this. And she said, I can't see a thing. <laughs> so I said, well, wonderful, you're enlightened. <laughs> so some of you may have been having some similar thoughts during the course of today. <laughs> So as I say, sometimes we stop, we slow our life down, we allow ourselves to relax into the living present and we begin to sense that there's you know, gross ways of living in life and the ways that that has its impact on this world, the violence, the aggression, the, the greed, and we don't want to contribute to that in any way. And we don't want to say the cause is in me, but there's something about the relationship to life which affects the, the beauty of it and the, and the mystical nature of it. And so then sometimes we, we touch into the breathing experience and there's a certain refinement, a quality there of breathing. But then we ask ourselves, with the quality of the breathing experience, could that be gross? If the outer and doing and pressure and, and all of that has a certain grossness to it, and then could the breath, which becomes subtle, become gross in relationship to something more subtle? This question has been asked. This question is actually in the text of the Buddha Dharma. And so 
I mean, look at, look at that. And sometimes, as I mentioned in the, um, in the talk this morning, and sometimes there is the breathing experience, and we breathe in, and then we breathe out, and sometimes when we breathe out, there's those quiet moments. And in those quiet moments, what we experience in those moments is just the pulse, just the pulse of life, the pulse of the organism sitting on the earth, and there's that pulse. And, the, and, the, and that very pulse itself, in comparison with being conscious of a breath, seems unusually refined, seems wonderfully subtle when it's so still. And then when the breath does come in, we feel the inhalation again, and that movement, in relationship to that quiet pulse, that breath seems rather gross. But then sometimes we ask ourselves, that pulse which we experience, sometimes that quiet vibration of life, could that very vibration of life in those moments, could that be rather gross? And sometimes people hear the, the depths of these teachings, and then unfortunately the mind then begins to come in and say, yes, I want that. Yes, I don't want to be so gross with the world, but I want to go more subtle than the breath. And then the pulse comes, and there's a sensitivity to the pulse, that quiet beat of one's existence before uh, or after a breath. And I want to go deeper into that, but the very wanting to do that unsettles not only the organism of the bodily life, if one looks deeply into what unsettledness means, it un unsettles the universe itself. And this one has to discover in one's experience. So I say sometimes there is a refinement. That refinement which comes can't be through an act of will. One cannot through will come to refinement. All that one can come through will is to pressure. And so there's a certain, whatever, surrender we might say. A certain renunciation we might say. And in that renunciation, in that surrendering, sometimes we're just with the pulse of life. And in that very pulse of life, there's a certain stillness in the midst of that pulse. You say, this is, what is this stillness? So still that it seems like the very vibration of breathing, the very vibration of bodily life, the very vibration of the pulse, seems almost like it's something external something kind of outside of things. And one wonders, could this subtlety, could this depth of sensitivity, which is the birthright of all, all caring and conscious human beings, could this depth have an influence to dissolve problems? Because problems is gross. Problems is external to depth. And, one be and the old mind which says, oh, depth is uprooting deeply rooted problems. Depth is going into the past, into childhood and babyhood or past lives. Depth is, is getting to the, to, into one's suffering or whatever. One says, we're concerned with the ending of problems through a spiritual depth. Not a psychological depth. Not an emotional depth. But sometimes, as I mentioned, in that subtlety, in that refinement of being, breathing the pulse of, of one's life, the, the subtlety within the pulse, that sense of stillness, in that sometimes it releases feelings, vibrations, sensations, images, pictures, stories, 
events, congestions, problems it releases. And if the mind comes in and says, I don't want this problem with me right now, I want to get back to that subtle point, that vi subtle vibration, in that very desire to get that, one will be in merciless spiritual conflict. The conflict will be merciless. And there are people in the contemplative life, in the spiritual life, who sometimes, with, with, through goodness rather than wisdom, through trying rather than wisdom, bring themselves into internal agitation and conflict because they think the desire will take me to where I wish to go. Desire in the ordinary gross world will take you where you wish to go with a bit of luck. But there's no luck going with the desire that goes deep. You cannot go by desire. You cannot travel this path this way. So sometimes we, there's an extraordinary sense of of, of exploration. And the senses, as I referred briefly in the, op in the talk this morning, there's the relative world, the gross world I'm calling it this evening. Not judgmentally gross, just gross in formation, gross in tightness, in substance. And that finding of that uh, refinement there begins to have its influence, the vibration of it, through every level of our being. Would we, are we interested to make that journey together? <coughs> then one says, when one looks deeply into, the, into these things, it seems like sometimes it's we're leaving the relative world behind, as it were, the conventional world and all the congestions that go with it. And there's a, there's a sense of something, a sense of something ultimate, something transcendent, Something greater than self-interest. Something other, we might say. And that spiritual journey, if we use that kind of language here, that spiritual journey is somehow some immediacy of discovery, of ultimacy, which I say is the only answer to the whole human predicament. Not meditation, not therapies of life, not organizing the mind, not trying to have the mind just so. It's in the ultimacy of things that all things are answered. And so sometimes in that exquisite moment of stillness that's found in the, in the vibration, one can ask, not with thought because it's too subtle at this point, one can ask, is in this subtlety, this moment of stillness, in the midst of that vibration, so subtle, is this gross? And for one who's gone deeply into the nature of things says, yes, this too is gross. And there's the potential and the wondrous possibility for a human being to discover that which is neither gross nor subtle. We call ultimate truth, not bound in gross nor subtle. And the, the exquisite freeing of a human being from problem in the moment, which has been the testimony and the witness for centuries upon centuries, freeing once and for all. And when the person says, it is extraordinary, 
I never worked anything out. I didn't think in terms of things coming up. I dropped all of those descriptive patterns which I've been habitually used to. An ending of problems, and yet nothing worked out at all. What is this wonderful mystical power in the, in the nature of things which reveals this? And this is the purpose of our visit to India. Nothing less than the best. Let us have a couple of minutes in the silence together, shall we please?